Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. Do I really wish you hadn't? I'm Michael Bentley, and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. Hey, hey. Better known now as Mr. Emily Fultz. Yeah. Congratulations. I'm now married. And as always, our producer, Colin Moore. He he did a married. Oh, hey. Hey, that's me. He, he done went and did a marriage. I did a marriage, and the podcast has suffered for it. <laughs> you will notice a sharp decline in quality from now on. Um... <laughs> But let me just say at the top, the wedding was awesome. I didn't murder Cayman in cold blood. Um, and actually had a person come up to me and be like, I know your voice. You're the podcast guy that Cayman does the podcast with. And I was like, yeah, I am. So we at least have one listener. We at least have one listener. And uh, she actually coincidentally, shout out to Katie, um, was helping me on uh, some of our Spanish because she speaks a little Spanish. Oh, well, there you go. Um, so she she listened through uh, part one and part two and told me a bunch of things that we did wrong and some things that we did right. And I can't remember them all right now, but, you know, that's more of a, that's more of a housekeeping episode. But thanks, yeah, Katie. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into all that. Hopefully we're going to um, nail it all today. Even though I think I only have one Spanish thing to say. Yeah, I still highly doubt it. Um, so this week we're finally getting back to our normal episode. We had the live episode, then we had the mini-sode, and you'll notice I actually did get my, uh, my Yeti cord back, so I don't sound like absolute trash. Um, you had the cable the whole time, didn't you? And it was just... Yes. It was draped, it was literally draped across the mic stand. All I had to do was look at the mic stand mm-hmm. and I would have seen it. Um, you but that's, that's not important. dumb butt. riveting content um so yeah this is our bay of pigs episode also known as the episode where every character is a villain so before we get started let me just say that i have looked at a ton of declassified cia documents on cia.gov so if i wasn't on a list before this episode i definitely am now yeah the cia doesn't like you looking at those yeah i feel like they're probably logging ips but um also, reading declassified CIA documents sounds neat. Um, it isn't. It is horribly boring. Like, I have to imagine... It's so boring. Working at the CIA for, like, 90% of people has to be the most boring job in the world. Like, 10% have the most interesting job in the world, but the rest of them are just, like, typing up, like, detailed documents about foreign bureaucracies, and that's pretty much what I got to read. Expense so. reports, man. They're important. It is. It's very important. Cayman, did you have anything that you wanted to say before we get into it? All right. Before we get started, when we last left off, I guess this kind of is getting started, but this is just kind of the preamble <laughs> to what I want to say, because I want to I want to give a good backdrop for Cuba before Bay of Pigs, right? So when we last left off, uh, Castro's revolutionary forces had obviously taken power in Cuba, and F- Fidel had become the second prime minister under President Urutia. Already, already doing great on the Spanish. President Urutia, yeah. 
So uh, let's just go ahead and run off some of uh, Castro's leadership before we start this episode so we have an idea about the status of Cuba around this time. So from the beginning, Castro was focused on a redistribution of land and property, and I'll get more into that later and explain some more of that. Uh, but Castro also began appointing known Marxists to the heads of different government positions in Cuba. One of these appointments was Che Guevara, obviously, since they're bros, uh, and he became the governor of the central bank and the minister of industries. So, like, when you have a communist running your entire economy, that's pretty communist. Yeah, a man who hates banks at the head of the central bank. <laughs> right. Um, it's like it's like appointing someone who doesn't believe in climate change to be the head of the EPA. Hmm. Topical. Uh, Very political. <laughs> so this was all despite the fact that Castro was still against calling his regime socialist slash communist. Um, they were still distancing themselves from that. Pretty instantly, President Urratia became pretty concerned with all the Marxists in the government and confronted Castro about it, which a few people confronted Castro about the government being communist, and uh, I don't think it worked out for any of them. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> as we talked about in the mini-sode, there was, you know, um, the, the Frank Sturgis and his friend, I can't remember his name, um, but they went, they're like, hey, you know, there's a lot of communists here, are you concerned about that at all? And he just, like, demoted them immediately. Right, yeah. Uh, so, Urrutia confronting Castro, it led Castro and his supporters to encourage Urrutia's resignation, and actually, I think Castro stepped down as premier for a little bit uh, during this time. Um, but once Urratia did step down, Castro replaced him with Osvaldo Dortico, and he was much more sympathetic to Castro's regime and possibly more likely to jump through Castro's hoops than Urratia was. So this really just gave Castro even more power. So Castro's policies then started to show more traditional socialist hallmarks. Uh, they expanded education, they nationalized healthcare, and they massively expanded infrastructure and housing. And Cuba actually did a pretty good job with these. I think that's something that we'll probably get into in a future episode. Maybe when we do like our episode five summary, if we can keep it that short. But uh, that's they, you know, the the normal socialist things they did a pretty decent job with. And there's there's a lot of data that pack that up. Um, unfortunately, in 1960, the Castro administration cracked down on the free press, requiring all articles critical of the government to publish, quote-unquote, clarifications at the end. So it's essentially like you could still be critical of the government in the press a little bit, but at the end you had to be like, well, you know, this is my personal opinion, and uh, here's the good things about the bad thing that I'm talking about, and that sort of stuff. So you had to like give the other side of the argument if you're being critical of the government. Yeah, you just had to be like, just kidding, bro. At the <laughs> yeah. end of every article. Right. Uh, so Castro ramped up the arrest and he targeted counter-revolutionaries. Um, essentially, these were the people that he thought were against the government. Or typically, they were against the government. But you know, were they going to be revolutionaries? This is kind of like preemptively keeping people from disposing his power. Right. I mean, it was it was like we talked about in some of the earlier episodes, right? Like student activism is huge in Cuba. So like there's so many people that are speaking out against the government, but only, you know, one in a million is going to actually 
rise up and try to take the power, you know? Interestingly, Castro at a later point would go on to say that that was Cuba's form of democracy. Is that elections weren't necessarily Cuba's form of democracy, but protests would always give the people's opinion to the government. Unless they crack down on it and make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's after, you know, in these like first few years, there were definitely a lot of arrests and things like that. I haven't gotten to study further to see if they ever like kind of lightened up, you know, cooled their jets on this one. But yeah, so essentially these counter-revolutionaries, if they weren't executed, then they would be subjected to psychological torture. So the Castro administration was very against real torture, which, you know, is civilized. Psychological torture isn't real torture. Well, no, that's that's the thing. They were like, oh, we don't torture because we don't hurt anybody. But like, they'll mess with you all day. So it's still torture. But I guess back then they were like, this isn't torture. We're just you know, dripping water on their heads and like playing weird noises. That's why, that's why we do all that stuff at Guantanamo Bay. Cause in Cuba, that's just part of the course. Some of that's just some of that stuff that Castro probably would have said was real torture. But well, I don't know. We'll do a Guantanamo episode one day. I don't know that much about it. So um, I would love to do that episode. This is kind of how a lot of the, rest were in the days following the revolution a lot of people you know were executed uh mostly firing squads this particularly led to the s cambrai rebellion which was a actually cia backed group not that they were just backed by the cia they were backed by disposed cubans um i, I do want to actually call this out right now a lot of the cubans that ended up leaving cuba were wealthy people um and that's because you know a lot of their businesses had been taken away things like that they had the means to leave they had the means to leave and they had the means to set up new lives in america and they knew that they didn't have business prospects in cuba because all this communist socialist stuff was coming around and also there was a lot of hostility towards them in cuba um, because the people who were impoverished were now in control really so a lot of those people left and that's you have a you had a lot of, you know, semi-wealthy Cuban businessmen in the US that are funneling money into the S Cambrai rebellion as well. Uh CIA like I said and you know just other interested parties other South American countries. Uh and the S Cambrai rebellion would go on to be a 6-year conflict in which its members would either, you know, die in battle in their guerrilla warfare tactics. Or they died by firing squad once they were captured. So, and I don't know if you know this for a fact or not, but, like, is there ever not rebels in the Escambray Mountains? Because, like, there were whenever Castro was trying to take power, and then immediately it was just, like, the people against Castro were in the Escambray Mountains. And as oh, we'll yeah. get into later, it becomes, like, a focal point for revolution. So, like, it just seems like the Escambray Mountains should be renamed to, like guerrilla warfare mountain like <laughs> <laughs> well maybe once their borders reopen we can like all take a oh once their borders reopen i'm we... not going to the s cambrai mountains i'll get shot no that's what i'm saying we go to the s cambrai mountains and we find if there's still some rebels up there no that's what i'm saying there's no way in hell i'd go there because no. you know that it's probably still riddled with traps like that nobody's found yet no but americans that go into the s cambrai mountains have a good time think about that reporter for the new york times well, no, that was the um, 
That was, was that the, the New York Times. No, nah, it was the Sierra Maestra. Oh, it was, was the Sierra Maestra mountains the Sierra that he was Maestra. at. Yeah, but yeah, there was yeah, a separate yeah, yeah. group in Escambray in that Escambray, was. Um, yeah. It was the DRE, I think, was in the Escambray mountains. I don't know. Go back and listen to our part two episode. Or what? Yeah, what what came from the DRE? It was the, yeah. the second the second front or whatever they were called. Um, so yeah, so all throughout what we're talking about and even past, there's going to be a rebellion group in the Escambray mountains. We will mention a few things about them. But that's it. Like, we cannot have a 15-part Cuba series. So that's a whole nother thing. Well, I bring up the Escambray Mountains as a pretty big point later, but... Okay, well, that's good. That's good. So, like, that is going on. Keep that in mind. Uh, so there's people very upset about Castro's regime already. Um, there's also some resistance in his own military, particularly uh, when you're talking about Chief and I am going to mess this up because it is spelled H-U-B-E-R. Uber. But this is Latin America. It's not Huber. It's Uber, maybe. Really? I think it's Uber, yeah. Uber Matos. Uh, he resigns over the communist presence in the military. So essentially, he confronted Castro. He confronted Castro about the communist. And Castro is like, yeah, they're going to stay there. And he's like, okay, well, I resign. Never a good idea. No, Castro's immediately like, this is one of my top military chiefs. Like, he's just going to take his portion of the military and revolt against me. He was not going to do that. That, And maybe he would have later, but Castro immediately was like, he's planning a revolt. Can I jump in there? Yeah, jump in. So Matos and Cienfuegos, who you're about to talk about, mm -hmm. but Cienfuegos was also a huge general for him. Right. Well, Cienfuegos was the people's general. Like, they loved him just as much as they loved Castro. And there was a time when Castro was speaking that Cienfuegos was there, and they wanted to hear from Cienfuegos. So, like, Castro was talking, and they were all like, let's hear from him. So, like, Castro starts to be like, oh, crap. What if they like him more than they like me? And him and Matos are both against the communist thing. Like, once once I start ramping up the whole communism-socialism thing, what if the people are like, ah, but we've got Cienfuegos, who we like better. So, I mean, I think there's some of it's justified. I'm going to say at this point, I'm not even sure if Castro is a communist. Everyone says that they were perfect friends, which is why... Keep this in mind, or keep that in mind as I go we should through ju this. Just, just finish the story, because yeah, it's finish important. Story. So essentially, like like Michael's saying, Matos uh, wasn't going to rebel. So Castro sent Cienfuegos to take control of the province and arrest Matos personally. Now Cienfuegos talked with Matos and assured him that relations could be smoothed could be smoothed over between him and Castro. But unfortunately, Cienfuegos' small passenger plane went missing over the Atlantic shortly thereafter, which has led to a lot of interesting theories. My personal theory is that uh, his plane ended up wherever Carol Baskin's husband plane landed, <laughs> and they're just chilling out somewhere. Um, well, this is also near the Bermuda Triangle, isn't it? Yeah, so they're also hanging out with uh, Amelia Earhart. No, I, that's probably closer to Bermuda, isn't it? Yeah. And I think a lot of the implication of people's theories I've seen around this is like, yeah, Castro bumped off Cienfuegos. I don't really believe that, because why wouldn't he just have bumped off Matos? Because, like I said, Cienfuegos was the popular one. I guess he was popular, He was yeah. the Justin Timberlake of the group, so he needed to get rid of him so that he could, you know, run in sync. Well, this is also goes back, what's the other, uh, Frank Pius. 
people say that Castro like somehow bumped yeah. him off, even though he was in a different part of the country. And and Castro may or may not have even known where he was. Exactly. So like, how how are you gonna you're gonna shoot down this guy's passenger airplane again? It's all speculation. Yeah, we'll never know for a fact. But it is it is suspicious. Where did the plane go? In in the ocean. What? What do you mean where the plane went? You gonna find a passenger plane in the entire ocean? Like that? But mm-hmm. where? Like you have a rough know. idea, maybe, because air traffic, if QB even had air traffic at this point in time. But still. So, I I don't know. I think that there's a lot of things, especially at this time, that went wrong with small passenger planes. It's not hard for me to believe that this dude's passenger plane just went down. Like, But a small passenger plane probably wouldn't be flying over the ocean. It's Cuba. There's nowhere to go. I don't know why he was flying over the ocean, but... Look, it's suspicious. Let's leave it at it's suspicious. Yeah, okay. It sounds like some anti-Castro propaganda, but okay. It does, but it's also weird. Like, anyway. Not really. L- let's die. move on. Okay. Regardless. People die, but like, passenger planes crash, but they would crash on land. They're, they never found anything. Colin, you want to weigh in on this one? You're, the, you're our pilot here. Would you sm- Would you fly a small passenger plane from Cuba to Florida? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I probably would. It's 90 miles. It's only 90 miles. Over the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, but still, I don't know. Okay. Maybe he defected then. Maybe he defected and lived a long life. Maybe the CIA disappeared him, and he's living in Nebraska right now under a new name. I'd love to meet him. I don't know. Oh, he's dead now. He's super dead now. Regardless, a role still alive. Raul's still alive. Regardless, Raul's still alive. Around this time, Castro decided that setting up a somewhat less than democratic government was a lot of stressful work. So he decided to treat himself with a little vacation. Yeah. So where better to go for your vacation than a diplomatic mission to the United States? <laughs> um, so Castro takes a trip to Washington, D.C. And you may be wondering why D.C.? Well, according to a declassified CIA document, Castro claimed, and you're going to hear me say that phrase a lot, according to a declassified CIA document. Like I said, I spent a lot of time on CIA.gov. Right. Um, Castro claimed that his goal in visiting was to, quote, win support for his policies from American public opinion, end quote. And that's why it's my opinion that Castro still thought that he could make this work with the U.S. Like, there's no reason, really, that they need to be enemies. Um, he thought that if he could win over the people, that the U.S. couldn't just outright assassinate him or declare war on him. So keep that in mind as I continue to talk about this topic, because I think it really highlights the actions that he takes during this trip to America. And one of Castro's first stops was he was interviewed on an episode of Meet the Press. Um, and while he was being interviewed, the interviewer asked him point blank, um, In the fight between democracy and communism, where do you stand? And Castro says, you know, I'm all about democracy. And I don't think he's lying. Like, we talked a little bit about how his view of what democracy is might be a little bit skewed. But I think that Castro was really a man of the people still at this point. I I think that kind of changes later on. But I think he wants to enact the will of the people. And I think that's really where the issue with this whole interview is is the interviewer is posing communism and democracy as two ends of the spectrum when that's not how things work like communism and capitalism two ends of the spectrum right 
Well, hypothetically, you could have a democratic communist government. It's just that no communist government ever comes into power without like a revolution. Like communism doesn't come about democratically. So it's like typically when you have a revolution, there's going to be a dictator. And in very few instances, there's not the U.S., but um, yeah. Yeah. And just to just to highlight the fact that it's 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 theoretically possible. Um, you know, Karl Marx is like the big uh, communism guy. Right. Um, and, and, and part of Marxist ideology is the is the idea of social democracy, um, which you can totally achieve once you purge your society of capitalists. It's a big first step. And then then you can have social democracy. Right. Also of note uh, in this interview with Meet the Press. Uh, Castro did the entire thing in English rather than bringing along a translator. And I think that's because he really knows how to win over the American people. If you're going to be in America, you got to speak English. Hell yeah. I might want to, I might want to cut that joke. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. He said it in like a Southern accent. accent. I'm sure it's fine. It's the accent of my people. It's the accent of all of our people. Yeah. So after the interview, Castro visited the Capitol building where he met with none other than Richard Nixon. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, Eisenhower's president at this time. Why is Castro meeting with the vice president, Nixon, when he should be meeting with Eisenhower? Where's Eisenhower? Well, Eisenhower didn't want to meet with Castro, so he went golfing. (laughs) <laughs> and I assume his mentality was that with the way that Cuba's going, there's probably going to be a new leader in like a couple months anyway, so why meet with this one? Um, so instead, Eisenhower just sent Tricky Dick along to meet with Castro and, and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. A country that's 90 miles off your border, and you yeah, send you know, Tricky Dick, someone with the name Tommy Tricky Crusher, Dick. Tommy Crusher Tricky Dick, Yes. Jesus well, Christ. I don't know. Maybe that is a good idea. You know, he can crush the commies. I, we're going to talk so many times or multiple times this episode about Eisenhower dropping the ball. And I just it's he made the interstate system. That's good. We like that. That's good. That's all. That's all I have nice to say. And I also wonder how many times Nixon's going to come up like in this entire podcast. Like how many episodes is Nixon a key part of that? He just like. Nixon's he doesn't ruin this, but Nixon is yeah. America. <laughs> Nixon, Nixon set the stage for the world we live in, unfortunately. And so you can go read the entire debriefing that Nixon gave after this conversation. Basically, he summarized it all for Eisenhower. He gave it a, a nice little bite-sized chunk. Um, and it was all declassified in 2013. And this is one of the few documents that I would say is actually a decent read. Um, but basically, Castro told Nixon to stop sending weapons to Latin American countries because they were just being used to keep dictators in power. Right. Um, remember the original plan was for the United States to arm the rest of, you know, the South America, Latin America countries so that if a foreign entity ever wanted to interfere, they were able to defend themselves and basically protect the entirety of the Americas from Europe, Asia, Australia, maybe? I don't know. Antarctica? Possibly. There might be Nazis down there. I read something on the internet about it. Right. Um, But that wasn't really what was happening. In in the conversation with Castro, Castro was like, hey, 
none of these countries have the means to actually fight in a war against anybody that would want to invade. So what's happening is these weapons are just being used by the people in power to stay in power. And this was actually a conversation that uh, Nixon and Castro could agree on, at least according to this debriefing. Who knows how Nixon actually felt. Um, So Castro then told Nixon that, you know, because Nixon's talking him up like, oh, communism is going to take over the world. We're going to work together to get rid of communism. Um, So Castro's like, look, if capitalism is the best way to run a country then why don't you focus on showing the world why it's the best rather than every single time a small country has the first, you know, socialist communist idea coming in guns blazing and crushing it. You know, that's, that's not the way to convince people. You're just, you're just stamping out any, any idea of progress. Um, And I think that's a really ballsy thing to say to the, say to the vice president of America on your, you know, first year in power well no because castro is a world leader and cuba is not a third world well i mean it's literally not by the definition a third world country but it's also it's not like a shithole country it was an up-and-comer at the time yeah like they they had a great economy they had a lot of infrastructure like he's the leader of a country he should be able to talk to our vice president however he damn he should be able to talk to our president he should be able to talk to our president, yes. But I I don't think that he's stepping over his bounds, but I, I get what you're saying is that he can't uh, talk to the American vice president that way. Like, it, you... Especially Nixon. His first meeting with U.S. government should have been all ass-kissing if he wanted to get anywhere. See, I... And we'll get into it, but, like, I... I get it. He's a revolutionary, right? He rages against the machine. That's his that's yeah. his lot in life, which you know, for for good or bad, that's who he is. Um yeah. but I also think that the American government didn't do enough to meet him where he was, you know? Right. So, I don't yeah. know. I like I said, this is the episode where everyone's a villain, especially for a country that's 90 90- miles off your border before cuba there were no communist countries near us and literally all we had to do was maybe be a little bit nice yeah but (laughs) we weren't used to that we we were used to if something gets bad send insurgents in and crush the government which we'll see how that works out um but anyway um so nixon ends his debriefing by concluding that castro is quote either incredibly naive about communism or under communist discipline. My guess is the former. End quote. So Nixon thinks that Castro is just an idiot. Yeah. He's naive. Yeah. He thinks, he thinks that, Oh, he's, he's being surrounded by communists and he can't even figure it out. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so that's what I'm saying is like, they treat Castro like a child. I I get why the animosity is there. Um, Castro, why you have all these communists around you? It's yeah, just exactly. Everybody, everyone, everybody everyone says that. They're like, like, have you noticed there's a lot of communists around? Um, <laughs> yeah. God. Gee, anyway. I wonder why. So <laughs> now is one of those times in the episodes where I have to put a big asterisk beside everything because every uh, the, the next part that I'm about to say is is all coming from one guy and and he's a guy that I do trust and respect um 
but he's the only source that I can find, and I can't find a first-hand document. I can only see where he has said that he read this from CIA documents. Um, and academic papers use it, and I went to, like, the citation, and it just has his name written. Like, he said it. And, again, he's a credible guy, but right. um, I still want to put the asterisk. Uh, but but allegedly, the CIA also met with Castro, and and we're talking about the whole thing, how they belittle him, right? So they, they want to discuss the threat of communism and to offer their services. So they basically say, like, hey, Castro... Um, you seem to have a lot of communists. Would you like to? Te- would you like us to tell you who all the communists in your administration are, so you can get rid of them? Basically, like I don't think you realize, but there's a lot of communists in there, and we can tell you who they are. Um, yeah. And basically, Castro's like, "Ah, you guys are crazy. Communism? There's no communism in Cuba. Come on, I can handle it." Y'all shouldn't worry so much. I, I got this. It's fine. There's no communism. They really shouldn't worry so much. Well, well they probably should. Well, I don't know. We'll <laughs> get into the it. They are the CIA. They should worry they the CIA. all the time. It's their jobs. Right. Um, but that pretty much wraps up Castro's I'm Not a Communist tour that he did in D.C. But before he left, he stopped off at the Lincoln Memorial and laid down a giant wreath at Lincoln's equally giant feet. And he then read the entirety of the Gettysburg Address under his breath and then left. That doesn't really have any bearing on the story. I just thought it was really odd. Castro is um, super, uh, like, pro-civil rights. Like, incredibly pro-civil rights. And in fact, a lot of the times that he's spoken poorly about America, he speaks about, like, our treatment of the natives and the black people in this country. Yeah. I don't have a hard time imagining that Lincoln was a big um, inspiration idol. for him. Or, yeah. Idol. Idol. Idol's good. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So before we move on, and we've kind of touched on it a lot, but I just want to emphasize that I really think that this trip to D.C. is what set everything else in motion. Um, yeah. I think this trip really confirmed everything that Castro's brothers in communism had been telling him. But basically, he was disrespected by the president, and everyone else that he talked to belittled him and just lectured him about the evils of communism without giving him any kind of respect or reason why he should believe anything they were saying. And it was just a generally a very hostile feel. And basically, Castro returned home and said, well, America clearly doesn't want anything to do with us, so let's try the Soviets. So with all that being said, I think this is the first time in this series that we've explicitly said this, but I'm going to go for it. Um, Eisenhower, I really wish you hadn't. Oh, this is going to be the first of I really wish you hadn't. Because at this point, there he can still salvage it. It gets yeah, worse. Yeah, absolutely. I think Eisenhower, though, right here, really screwed the pooch. Like, how are you going to go play golf instead of meeting with the new Cuban president? Like, just meet with him. Shake his hand. You don't have to talk for four hours. Just be like, hey, you know, good to meet you, Castro. Right. I hope you, I, I wish you the best. I hope you the the capitalistic best. You can even say that. Let's figure out how to be friends. Let's, you know, get some trade agreements or something. I've got a great compromise. Invite Castro to play golf with you. Yeah. What a great idea. That's not even in my notes. I just came up with that. You should be, uh, you should be a foreign advisor. A foreign advisor. There you go. Yeah. 
chief of staff. I should be I should be secretary of state. Yeah. Um you should be the president. I should be the president. <laughs> you should be the god emperor. This these are all great ideas. <laughs> no, mm. after this podcast, I don't think any of us can ever run for public office. Well, see in this because I'm looking at Michael's notes now and in his notes he calls Eisenhower a coward, but I feel like he glazed over that. Yeah, I called him a coward, but he was also a general in World War II. I can't really call the man a coward. Um, I, I'm sure he was cooler in his younger years, but <laughs> as president, he was kind of a douche. He did some good things, some dumb things. He built the He's interstate. Like yeah, he built the interstate. Those are great. <laughs> we really like the interstate. Hey, you guys ever been on an interstate? It's awesome. It's rad. It's like a roller coaster for cars. <laughs> <laughs> The interstate should have loop-de-loops. Changed my mind. So, Castro also visited America a second time, um, this time to attend a meeting at the United Nations. And during this time, as Cayman previously mentioned, civil rights is, you know, obviously a huge issue in America at this time, and Castro really identifies with that and, and, and wants to bolster that. When he comes to visit the United Nations, he actually stays in Harlem at the request of Malcolm X, who he meets with while he's in America. And he also meets with Nikita Khrushchev, who he had obviously been making pretty good friends with at this time. And while he was at the United Nations, Castro gave the longest recorded speech in UN history, clocking in at roughly four and a half hours, which makes me think that he would be a great pad podcaster. Well, if you ever get the chance to replace me on this podcast with the ghost of Fidel Castro, the ghost of Fidel go Castro, for it. I the will be offended. We'll get one. Right. It's yeah. going to be me, the hologram of Tupac, and me and the hologram of Castro. Castro. It'll be like the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. I'd listen to that podcast, for sure. <laughs> also during this meeting, <laughs> Castro matched Khrushchev's vote on every issue that came up. Uh, you know, kind of showing that he's pretty loyal to them at this point. Wait, did Khrushchev also meet Castro in Harlem? Or did they meet at yeah, the I United think, Nations? Yeah, no, I think they came. he came down to Harlem. That's neat. I'm not sure, though. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds neat. I just can't imagine, like, Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union in Harlem. Like, yeah. Like, the epicenter of black art and culture in the United States. It's just a strange place to find him. He came up to Harlem. Harlem was uptown from the UN. He would go up to Harlem. Oh, he'd go up to Harlem. Okay. Excuse me, Colin. I think I think uh, Michael said it, not you. Oh, Michael said it. He said he came down to Harlem. We can go down and go. Sorry, up, up I don't down. know the layout of New York. You gotta get on the Uptown subway to go to Harlem from the UN. You gotta hit the, the L, different. go down to the 304. I, I don't know what trains. <laughs> I I hate you guys. Over. I'm just gonna say over because the world's flat anyways, and North isn't it's real. Not over. You go over. You're a not. few short months later, Castro <laughs> would announce to the world that he was a Marxist-Leninist. A Leninist. Oh, Marxist-Leninist. It's not really a sexy term. No, it's not. Um, and regardless of what you believe, if you think he wasn't a communist up until this point, he is definitely a communist now and is very unapologetic about it. Well, and this is okay. You say a few short months later. 
there's a few things that go on in a f- few short months that really like cement this. Oh yeah, this entire this entire and stuff like, happens in and a Michael's few short months. Michael's just hitting on Castro in America. Like there's before the whole communist thing comes out, there's some more things we got to get into. So let's talk about a trade war. Um, when Castro's revolutionary government came to power, half of all agricultural lands in Cuba were owned by foreign entities. And 85% of peasants worked in land that they didn't own. So 85% of these low-income people are working on land that's not theirs. By May 17, 1959, Cuba passes the Agrarian Reform Law, which actually was something that came up in the Constitution of 1940, but never got enforced. Um, So this law set the maximum amount of land that any entity in Cuba can own to 406 hectares. A hectare is 100 acres. Um, So it's roughly 77 football fields for you Americans. Thank you for putting that in freedom units. Yeah, freedom units. (laughs) Much better. God. As I was typing it, I was like, I hate that I'm typing this. But, you know, I I feel like it's fair. People don't really think in acres, and it's kind of hard to... Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I... I have no idea how big an acre is. I can't visualize 77 football fields. <laughs> it's just so many football fields. Um, regardless, owners of land that was confiscated that was over 406 hectares uh, would be paid back the value of their land that they reported on their taxes that previous year. Uh, unfortunately, this got a lot of wealthy business owners really pissed off, mainly in Cuba and the U.S. And I've read a lot on this and people are like oh well my land was worth more than that so your land is worth more than you reported it was worth on your taxes um because that's entirely where the cuban government got that number is like they had the reported like your reported assets of your land tax fraud doesn't pay right exactly especially when your land's getting seized and they're offering to pay you back for it but you are already undervaluing it apparently um and it, you know, it could be worth more than that because it's a product or whatever. But there's there's a lot of things there that I found interesting. Um, so now, one thing that we know is that America thinks that communists are bad. I feel like that's come up so many times in this podcast that it may as well be the name of this podcast. Um, and America sees this move as pretty darn communist. And Eisenhower is all like, son of a bitch, no oil for you. And that's essentially what he does. He's, he decides to punish Cuba for being communist by cutting off oil exports to Cuba. Yeah, for further, like, growing the gap between them, which I think is the wrong move. I mean, like, really, you should be doing outreach. Yeah, and even more importantly than that, he reduced the import quota of sugar. So he reduced the amount of sugar that the U.S. would buy from Cuba. Yeah. Like, putting a cap on it. Now, Cuba's main export is sugar. <laughs> right. That's what all this land is for. And that's so one, like you're cutting off in, in 90 miles from the U.S. I'm going to say that so many times. 90 miles from the U.S. You're cutting off their main purchaser of sugar. And you're prohibiting them, which you're their largest supplier of oil. You're cutting off your oil supply. Where oh where is Cuba gonna you know sell this stuff and get oil? There's only one place that can keep up with the U.S. And all because they're essentially doing the 
eminent domain thing where they buy land from people. Like, yeah. And well, that's the thing. Could you imagine if 50% of the U.S.'s agricultural land was owned by another country? You think that we just, like, people would be so pissed off. People would yeah. be so pissed off. And it's not like it was... Anyway, we can we can get into the, the hypocrisy. It's And this it's was bad. in the 1940 Constitution. Like, the American right. Fruit Company should have seen this coming. Regardless. United Fruit. United Fruit. That's what it was. Uh, United Fruit was one of the people real pissed off in this. So, yeah, Cuba essentially having nowhere else to turn, they nationalized all American-owned oil refineries in Cuba and for good measure went ahead and nationalized some other American businesses as well, such as plantations and mines. All in all, the nationalization of American businesses in Cuba accounted for $1.7 billion loss to American companies. Well, can I ask a quick question about the oil thing? Yeah. So... So they're limiting the amount of oil that Cuba can get, right? Mm -hmm. From the U.S. So essentially, but there's, but the U.S. refineries are in Cuba. So they're taking Cuba's oil and then saying, you can't have this oil. Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm not sure if they're exactly extracting that much oil in Cuba, but they are refining it in Cuba. I don't know how oil works. So the thing is, I'll get into this so, in a okay. second. Then back up. Yeah. Are they refining oil there and then selling it elsewhere? See, yes, that's what they were doing. They weren't so, selling oil to Cuba, but they were refining it there and then selling it, which is why Cuba's like, nope, we're nationalizing those oil refineries. Does it help Cuba to have a refinery if they can't get the raw oil? No, which is why they just take it. They just said, you they can't have it either. It. We're going to break our toys and go home. Yeah, no, no. Well, they don't break it. They're like, you have all these refineries here. Uh, you won't give us oil, and we're not getting anything from this. We're taking them. We're nationalizing them. And like I said, they did that with uh, some fruit companies as well. They they did it with mines in uh, Cuba. So like, they're Cuba and America are rapidly, rapidly distancing themselves from each other. Like this is a very tense time, and we'll see what it's leading up to. They've got their own little mini Cold War going on. Yeah, right. I wonder if it's the Bay of Pigs. I wonder if that's what it's leading up to. <laughs> so by October of that same year, 1960, um, Eisenhower placed the first trade embargo on Cuba, severely limiting what could be exported to Cuba. Um, mostly this was going to be like food and humanitarian aid that could still be exported. Everything else was out. Um, and... Once again, I think he further reduced the quota of sugar. I saw that on um, an article that I was reading, but I'm not sure if they're talking about from where he reduced the quota of sugar before, but, you know, um, still. Um, so not only did the U.S. start embargoing Cuba at this time, but they also started pressuring their allies to do so as well. So like Central America, Europe, they're like telling everyone, like, stop trading with Cuba. So Cuba has no one to trade with, and luckily not everyone really fell for this, but essentially the way that Cuba saw it was like America and their allies can't be trusted to trade with us anymore. And they're completely pushed away from American relations, like relations with all of the, you know, quote unquote democratic world, all of the first world. 
So before we get much further, we should talk about the USSR in this. Now, during the Cuban Revolution, you'll notice that we talked very little, almost none, about the USSR. And you may be thinking, wouldn't they want to help out communist revolutionaries? Well, like me, Michael, have said a million times before, um, and I'll state it once more for clarification, the the revolution was not communist. Uh, The USSR had no reason to think that they should be helping out these revolutionaries for any reason. Wouldn't it be funny if they did, though? Like, you got Frank Sturgis in there, the CIA, the USSR working together. And then they kiss. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to write fan fiction about the Cuban Revolution? Yes. More than anything (laughs) in the world. Now, it really took a year of Castro being in power before his communist leanings would become clear to the world, including to the Soviet Union. In fact, the USSR Communist Committee and the KGB both looked into Castro when he was leading the revolution, and when they asked the Cuban Communist Party to give them a report on Castro, the party asserted that he was bourgeois and likely a CIA operative. So, like, possibly he was, you know, we've not a CIA operative, but possibly he was funded. It's not a crazy thought, though, right? Because he was a lawyer before he was a revolutionary. He came from a wealthy family. Yes, his dad was a wealthy landowner. Um, And then, you know, whether directly or indirectly, his revolution was being backed by the CIA. So from the outside looking in, it's not a crazy thought to think that, you know, he's one another one of these puppet administrators. Yeah, and my favorite fact now, and the fact now that pisses me off still, is that Batista gave Castro and his wife (laughs) $10,000 for their honeymoon at his wedding. No one, that was, that was like 1950 money. No one gave me damn near $10,000 at my wedding for my honeymoon, and I'm still bitter about it. So it's, yeah, no, it's easy to see why... People think that who's bourgeois. You needed to call up some foreign dictators. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And call up the if foreign done dictators. That. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, next time. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah, your next wedding. Right. Hopefully, there's never a next time. We'll cut that. We'll cut that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, me and Emily could renew our vows. That's what I mean. There you go. Great, great, yeah. great mm-hmm. pivot. Great yeah. pivot. You right. saved it. You saved it. Uh, so. It wasn't until Castro's poor experience in America, um, you know, where Eisenhower denied their meeting, that the USSR began to believe that they could actually approach Cuba. Which, you know, good job, Eisenhower. Thanks for pushing them together. Uh, Once the embargo came around, the USSR began providing damn near everything for Cuba. Weapons, fuel, goods, etc., And partially in exchange for sugar and tobacco, like they were also buying a lot of Cuba's you know, tobacco and sugar. But also, this was great for the USSR. They were going to have an ally 90 miles, I will say it again, 90 miles off the coast of the U.S. Yeah. Now, before this, the only thing that you could reach with the U.S. without us knowing was maybe an interballistic missile. But still, like, that's... Intercontinental ballistic missile. Yeah, inter- yeah. So, it... it's crazy to have things that close and you know at this point i'm not even sure how good that technology was 
you know, you're launching something from the USSR and you're trying to hit the US at that point in time, probably pretty damn difficult. You're launching something from Cuba to hit the US, it's going to be easy, which, you know, we'll get into that in our next episode. We should do nuclear weapons at some point. Well, yeah. maybe we will touch on it, but like the the USSR was lying about so many things. Like they said, oh yeah, we can hit DC from Moscow. They were completely lying. Their yeah. rocket tests were failing. Their freaking they they were not doing well. They had like fake painted missiles that were like at the they same were just like time. Tubes. Reagan said that we had a space laser that we didn't have. So you know we, we had were doing Star the Wars. Same damn he called thing. it Star Wars. We it's, did the same thing with Japan. Yeah, it, yeah when we we had three mm. nuclear bombs, and we were like, "Yeah, we could drop these all day, every day." And Japan was like, "Okay, we give up." Yeah, but yeah. No, regardless, every country does that. Where are we even at? We we keep getting so off track. There's just so much to talk about. So yeah, no, they're selling everything to Cuba in exchange for sugar and tobacco, but you know, Cuba's getting the good end of the deal because it's all about the real estate. Yeah, right. The USSR wants the real estate. Location, location, location. <laughs> right. Um, so this is a critical point in time because regardless of Castro's political ideology, the U.S.'s actions leading up to this embargo all but cemented a Cuban-Soviet alliance. Uh, Cuba had literally nowhere else to turn to. You know, if they weren't communists before this point, it doesn't even matter if they were communists before this point because where else are they supposed to turn? So, yeah, they become communist. How much of that is ideology and how much of that is we have to suck up to the USSR? Necessity. Because they're the, it's necessity. Right. Exactly. Now, pretty quickly, Eisenhower and the CIA decided something needed to be done before Cuban communism became, began spreading to the rest of Latin America. Covertly, the CIA began putting together a plan to set up an exiled Cuban government that they had firm control over, and then recruiting some Cuban refugees now living in Florida to invade Cuba under the banner of this government. Now, keep in mind at this point, there's 250,000 Cuban refugees in the U.S. Um, obviously, you know, you're not going to get even a fraction of that to go fight for Cuba back. They had already left. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they, they have a pool of people. So that's how many Cubans are in the U.S. right now. Yeah. Now, as early as March 1960, the CIA had presented this plan as an option to the U.S. National Security Council, after which they were given $13 million to support their plan. Luckily, Eisenhower wasn't actually going to have to see this plan through, however, uh, because someone new was coming in office. Um, John Kennedy had just won the presidential election. Well, hold on. But before we get into him winning... So so Eisenhower is planning all this, and he's, like, signed approvals right. and whatever. Nixon was briefed on it, obviously, because he was the vice president. And because Kennedy was the other nominee for the other party, uh, the CIA was like, we need to brief him just in case he wins. He needs to know, because we're going to be just in case putting this in within months of him winning, right? So he needs to at least be aware. He looks pretty enough. He might win. I don't know. I kind of want to kiss him. <laughs> they were talking about this and nixon was like no don't tell kennedy about anything we need to keep this under wraps and you don't need to worry because kennedy's not gonna win this election that which sounds very nixon that's yeah, very exactly nixon. nixon was like don't tell kennedy um so the reason that kennedy comes in and immediately gets told oh by the way uh we're planning an invasion of cuba is all because of nixon yeah 
Um, so Nixon's also a villain in the story. Well, uh, okay. I will say technically Kennedy did hear about it before he was in office. Um, because, but that's it was probably that's, like shortly after he won the election, though. It was after he won the election because after he won the the election, him and Eisenhower started having meetings to transition things because this is yeah. back at a more civil time in U.S. history. Um, so he did hear about it technically before he was in office, but he'd already won. Yeah, but yeah. So now, now Kennedy's in office, and there's this whole plan to overthrow the cuban government that the cia has been planning and he's just really got to go with it at this point yeah so cayman gave a brief overview i'm i'm gonna give a little bit more in-depth overview of what the plan was so basically they were wanting to get a bunch of cuban expats that hated the cuban government give them all guns and you know guerrilla warfare training and send them into cuba uh, the invading army was supposed to, you know, hit the beach and then run to hide in the Escambray Mountains again, like we talked about. There's a huge, there's already uh, a big rebel force in Escambray. I wouldn't say big, but there, there's, there's something brewing there. So right. they're supposed to uh, flee into the Escambray Mountains, meet up with the other rebel forces, and basically start the revolution. This is completely ignoring the fact that the Escambray Mountains are 50 miles from their landing zone, which right. is a lot of distance to travel through hostile territory. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that they were expecting to be able to hold 50 miles from where they landed to the Escambray Mountains. Possibly. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but like, there's just so many opportunities to get surrounded when you're like, trenching deep into the middle of a you know foreign nation yeah exactly i mean it's not foreign though right they're they're cubans they they know the land kind of i don't know i don't know what the mentality was i guess it's not cuban for them Uh, it is cuban for them it's cuban for everyone or it's not for (laughs) i guess it's not foreign for them Okay, but the idea was that once the troops had a foothold, the CIA would fly in that provisional government that Cayman was talking about. Uh, They basically already had the government set up in Miami, and they were just a puppet administration. And they were just going to declare themselves the new government, and they would be, you know, the new republic or whatever, speaking in Star Wars terms. Um, And really quick, I want to mention that they were the definition of a sock puppet administration. They were at a safe house in Miami, and the CIA was writing declarations in their name and, like, publishing them and saying, hey, it's us, the new government. Good luck, boys. (laughs) Um, So before before they even declare themselves the government, the CIA is already doing their jobs for them. They were there to be the government, and that was it. It sounds like a sweet gig, though. Oh, it does. To be a puppet government? I don't know. Actually, I wouldn't want to do it. Like, you literally don't have to do your job, but you get all of, like, the credit and praise for it. Like, Yeah, but you also, whenever a dude rolls up in a tank, you're his first target. That's fair. You can't really fight the CIA. I don't know, but most of the puppet administrations got to flee to America. I don't. Did any of them get executed? Exactly. That's That's great. They didn't even have to go fight for things. All they had to do was sit and... Yeah. We need to check in on <laughs> Batista. How is he doing? He died in Miami. Well, cool. We'll need to... We'll, I'm sure he died a very lavish man. So... Yeah. 
once America, the idea was that once, once you know, these American forces hit the scene, well, and I say American forces, and I'll get into it later, but I'm going to be referring to the invading forces as the American forces because that's what they are. Yeah. Uh, but the idea was once the American forces hit the scene, everyone would realize that Castro kind of sucks anyway and join the new Cuban army. A bold gamble. Is a very bold gamble. In fact, I think that's actually the exact, or it's very close to the words that the CIA documents use. They they do call it a gamble. <laughs> but in CIA documents that we'll talk way more in depth about later, um, it was revealed that the CIA was planning for 30,000 Cubans to join the invading forces. And now to be fair, like we've talked about, the anti-communist sentiment had been growing in Cuba but most of the most ardent commie crushers had already left Cuba for the United States whenever things started get to get bad. Right. And many of those that were really against communism had fled to the United States and then were in the invading forces. So all the people they're planning on are already there. I think that you also have this American mentality of like, oh, the common man must hate like living under communist rule and like it i'm sure they're all pissed off and they're ready to join us we're really down in cuba they're like hey we're learning how to read and we have health care and roads and we own land like for the first time this is fantastic <laughs> like yeah no it's it, they really it, it's just the dumbest gamble ever like yeah. you have the force in the S. Cambrai Mountains. Anyone that's wanting to rebel against Cuba has probably already joined up with them. Is already there. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you got. Well, like, and what's why crazy are you is expecting more. The well, and they're expecting thirty thousand, which that's a lot. It's so many. It's a lot, especially considering I, I, I tried to get a solid number. The closest thing I could get was there's a Wikipedia number that said. Castro's highest number of forces that he held was 3,000. And so, hell, even double that. Say he had 6,000. They're expecting 30,000. Yeah. Thir that's, it, it's insane. There's no way. And so I think a lot of this was just like, nah, it'll work out. It'll be fine. We'll, 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 it'll be fine. Yeah, it's, it's... But regardless... I wonder if it's going to work out for him. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. Um, so the CIA is planning this fully Cuban army. So obviously they're going to need a guy on the inside. The CIA can't just, they don't have any Cubans on in the CIA. Um, so enter Manuel Artemé. Manuel Artemé was a rebel in Castro's army whenever he took power that had defected to the United States after the arrest of, how did you end up saying it? Uber? Or no, it was... Uber? Uber. Uber? Uber. Uber Matos. Uber Matos. So, so after he gets arrested, uh, Artemé is like, yeah, I gotta get out of here. It's about to be overrun with communists. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you're at the Waffle House and you have to uh, mutter that phrase? <laughs> I gotta get out of here. It's about to be overrun with communists. <laughs> <laughs> so being a native Cuban and a seasoned combatant made him a prime candidate to be the leader of the invasion. So phase one of the plan, as Cayman said, was to send Artemé to Little Havana in Miami to find potential soldiers. Artemé set up shop with known anti-Castro advocates and started recruiting. The CIA told the recruits that they would be paid by a wealthy, anonymous Cuban donor for their efforts in taking back Cuba. But when the recruits started getting their checks, they were referring to their anonymous donor as Uncle Sam. So the CIA just stopped pretending. <laughs> 
the recruits were trained in various locations uh, before settling in Guatemala. So Guatemala became kind of the base of operations for this for this rebellion, or well, I guess this invasion, really. Right. Um, and along the way, the troops were trained in guerrilla warfare, paratrooping, tank and naval combat, and I got to learn a new word. Uh, they were trained how to be frogmen. Oh yeah, which are apparently. That, which means they essentially scuba dove with M16s and then they could just like blast out of the water and just like start mowing people down. Yeah, no. Well, that's not, they were more used for reconnaissance, but frogmen are very important. I've never heard the term frogmen. Yeah, frogmen. Now, the most important thing for JFK is that this entire thing has plausible deniability. He does not want any of this to reflect on the United States in any way. Um, if America was seen as the aggressor, it would not be a good look. And remember, we are deep into the Cold War at this point, and it's starting to warm up. Yeah, something nice pun, but <laughs> <laughs> something something that I'm uh, wondering or have wondered a lot is: Do you think that Eisenhower would have been the same way? Do you think he would have like tried to like make it very no. clear that the U.S. wasn't doing anything? I don't think so. Yeah, he would have said, balls out, this is the U.S. I think Eisenhower would have, yeah, Eisenhower would have went way harder. And we'll talk about, Kennedy backs off a lot from this. I do not think Eisenhower would have. I think if Eisenhower was in power when this took place, the only way this would have ended is with a military defeat one way or the other. Right, and I don't I don't blame Kennedy for that. No, I don't either. Because I don't think Kennedy wanted this to happen at all. He was like, no, hey, this is just as bad. We don't need to do this. You couldn't call it off, though. And I, I, right. I was thinking about putting this in my notes, but this is a good place to say it. Um, you've now got, like, th thousands of Cubans in Guatemala who are now armed and trained in guerrilla warfare. If you went and, and ready to take back their country, like, these are passionate people who are trained in warfare. Right. If you go down and tell them, hey, we're not going to do it. Plans off. <laughs> yeah, plans off. We're going to go home. Everybody needs to go home now. You would have a war in Guatemala. You'd have a war in Guatemala or you'd have terrorists coming back to the United States. Exactly. I mean, like, it's it's all bad. Which, I mean, the U.S. is great at making terrorist groups, so maybe we should have it's, just gone yeah. down that path. We'll, but we'll get into that. We digress. Continue. So anyway, um, this is going to be the first time. So I've I've been working on my Kennedy impersonation. It is not very good. Um, but I, I've got to use it here. Believe in yourself. All right. So, again, Kennedy wants to present plausible deniability, and he even went as far as to say publicly, quote, I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. While we would not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. End quote. It's it's hard. It is really it is a hard impression. Well, he's a thick Boston accent with a speech impediment. Like, with like, the lisp. It's that like it's lisp. a small yeah. lisp though. You've got you can't do yeah. too much. All right, anyway. So basically what Kennedy was saying was we're rooting for the Cuban rebels, but we're not gonna help them. Like we're not putting American forces in Cuba. Bullshit. Um, yeah. Well, we kinda do. Um, Bullshit. So as such, the Renegade Army had to be given reasonable equipment that a guerrilla army could put together. No F-18 fighters, no B-17 bombers, 
just whatever the Cubans had access to. So we gave them shit. Yeah, yeah, we kind of did. <laughs> we um, gave them our old shit. Yeah, yeah, we didn't disguise it very well, but we'll get into that. So the issue was that it was hard to maintain plausible deniability when the New York Times literally printed a front page article titled Anti-Castro Units Trained to Fight at Florida Bases. So, but on that note, I, I, <laughs> I keep coming back to the fact that, like, the New York Times is one of Castro's biggest allies. Like, if you'll remember in the second episode we mentioned that they gave him that stunning review of his, like, leadership ability and all that stuff, and now they're warning him about a U.S. invasion that's coming ten days later. I mean, I can't really blame him. Like... I would also like you, you like you said this is the height of the Cold War and the New York Times is reporting hey the US government's just trying to overthrow this like new country pretty much in Cuba and they're close friends with the USSR I mean it's still a reporting I'm not I'm not faulting them for it Yeah I wouldn't fault them for it that's what I'm saying But I'm just saying like it's funny that it's always the New York Times Yeah like you know Castro had a subscription cuz he was like I want to see what they say about me <laughs> <laughs> I want to see if Matthews has something nice to say Matthews being the guy who wrote the first review Right um just wanted to clarify It's been a while since episode 2 came out mm -hmm. Um so, as we'll get into, this plan is not going as well as the CIA had hoped. Um, you see, up to this point, it would have been more accurate to refer to this plan as Operation Zapata rather than the Bay of Pigs invasion. Because originally the plan was for the troops to invade Trinidad. This was a major port in Cuba and was densely populated. Because remember, once these guys show up, everybody's just going to start rising up against Castro. Right. Also, Trinidad is a very good temporary capital city, since it's also a major port, a major economic hub, you know, all these things. However, Kennedy insisted that the landing site be moved from Trinidad to a beach 80 miles west of Trinidad, located in the Bay of Pigs. This was to reduce the threat to civilians and make everything seem less formal military and more guerrilla improvising. Unfortunately, this choice might have been the reason that the operation failed as spectacularly as it did. I'm not suggesting that Kennedy, like, did anything to mess this up on purpose. But, like, honestly, like, he's like, I don't like this plan anyways. Let's just send him to the Bay of Pigs instead. There's no civilians there. It won't be, it won't look like the U.S. is invading a city. Like, it's, I get, I get the sentiment. But regardless... So, preparation for the invasion depended really on four vital points. One, that the Cuban citizens were disgruntled with the Castro administration, and, you know, obviously would join them. Non-American B-26 bombers would cripple Cuban airfields. Castro would be confused about where the invasion would happen. And the invading force, given the moniker Brigade 2506, would be able to gain a foothold and prep airstrips upon their arrival. Essentially, in evaluating how those four points went, uh, they all just went to shit. Yep. So, <laughs> phase one of the invasion is the morning of April 15th. Now, six Cuban-piloted B-26 bombers struck two airfields and military bases in an attempt to destroy the Cuban Air Force. Their planes for this bombing were old B-26 bombers 
painted to match. And this is going to be more Spanish. Spanish warning. Fuerza Area Revolucionera. Uh, we're going to call them FAR or FAR. Uh, now, this is essentially the Cuban Air Force. So we were taking our old B-26, we being America, taking our old B-26 bombers, painting them like Cuban bombers, and then bombing Cuba with them. Genius. Now, the attempt was to make it appear that these Cuban pilots were disgruntled with Castro and defecting. A defecting plane, another one of these, also disguised as an FAR aircraft, radioed a mayday distress signal off the coast of Florida and informed U.S. authorities that he was defecting from the Cuban Air Force, having engine trouble, and requesting permission to land. How convenient that both of those things happened on the same day. The funny thing is, like, well, he was, the point was, like, it was supposed to appear that he was a part of this. Oh, okay. But uh, the funny report that I read is that the they had taken the panels off the side of the plane, like off the side that covers the engine, and they had shot them full of bullet holes and put them back on to make it look like he'd taken fire. And that's why I was having engine troubles. So this is at Miami International Airport. He was taken into custody by U.S. Customs as soon as he landed. Um, he then explained that he and two colleagues, who had also defected, had stolen their planes and attacked Cuban air bases. Now, Castro immediately knew that this was bullshit and blamed the U.S. This also gave him the hunch that something much larger was brewing, so he rounded up all of his dissidents and detained them to prevent an uprising. So Cuba called an emergency session of the United Nations Political and Security Committee uh, that was in New York that very afternoon. The U.S. ambassador presented pictures of the planes that defected, hoping to prove that these were defected planes and not those of the U.S. Unfortunately, in the pictures, the noses of the B-26s were immediately noticed to be metal, whereas far aircraft noses were plastic. Um, so little minor detail that was immediately like called out. So fun story, actually the ambassador that was presenting that argument wasn't informed of any of this. So he was like, these are definitely like Cuban aircraft. Like, look at this picture. And he was pissed when he got called out because like that ruined his reputation. He was like, now they think I'm a liar because I was lied to and no one told me what was going on in Cuba. So now phase one kind of went okay. Kind of went okay. Yeah, that's what's unfortunate is <laughs> is in the grand scheme of Bay of Pigs, that gets counted as kind of went okay. Yeah, and something I didn't write down, but I do also want to bring up is that um, we were supposed to take out like the Cuban Air Force. Like these bombings were supposed to take out the Cuban Air Force. Now, either... There was a lot of airplanes that were hidden, like Castro knew that this was coming up, because one, I think that that's very plausible. Well, that's what he said in a... Right. He said that in a speech to uh, to a college. He was like, yeah, yeah I knew yeah. something was happening. I wasn't going to have all my Air Force in one location. Right. So I think that that's stupid plausible. Um, the other theory that I've heard is that these, you know, essentially Cuban-trained pilots... And I'm not even sure, I like, I'm pretty sure these were Cuban pilots that were trained to do this. Wanted to appear like they were doing a good job and lied about how well they did in the bombing. But they were supposed to take out a lot of the Cuban Air Force. And it could have been a mix of those two things. I think 
Castro definitely saw this coming because there's a lot of evidence now that the KGB knew about this plan like the entire time and the CIA knew that the KGB knew about this plan the entire time. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure if it really makes a difference. I don't think the CIA knew that the KGB knew. I thought that too and I did some research on it. I've been convinced that they thought this was going to go fine. Uh, okay. Regardless, phase two. Um, so this is April 16th, the day after April 15th, which is when all of the things went okay. That's as best as it's going to go. So April 16th, being that the U.S. was immediately exposed as being the orchestrators of the attack, President Kennedy made the decision to cancel the airstrikes set to destroy the remaining Cuban Air Force. Uh, this is essentially the entire second phase of this three-phase plan that was just canceled. Yeah, and so I was watching a History Channel documentary about the Bay of Pigs, and they interviewed Jacob Esterline, who was the task force chief of the Bay of Pigs invasion. And they, they're basically talking about when Kennedy canceled the airstrike. And a guy comes to tell Jacob Esterline, hey, Kennedy just canceled the airstrike. And Jacob Esterline said, when he told me, I guess I did go after him. I'm glad they stopped me because that would have been embarrassing. And the footage from the documentary just shows the silhouette of a man strangling another person. So I don't know if he like started to strangle the guy whenever he told him that he was, or if it was just a like funny sight gag. I don't know. But the, the, the dude was like very serious. He was like, yeah, I'm glad they stopped me because that wouldn't have been good. Like he might've <laughs> actually strangled. He might've actually killed the messenger like straight up. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Oh, oh, you're talking about him strangling the messenger. I was imagining yeah. him like strangling Kennedy, busting in the Oval Office. And like, yeah. <laughs> you son of a bitch! You son of a bitch! Yeah. Where was he? Where was he on November November twenty second, nineteen sixty three? Hopefully not in the Secret Service car. Hopefully not on the grassy knoll. Yeah. Um, so phase three, since we just straight up skip phase two, uh, April 17th. Now, this is the morning of the Bay of Pigs invasion. And this is mostly comprised, or, I mean, all of the forces that are going to be doing the fighting are the amphib amphibious troopers and the paratroopers. Frogmen. No, the amphibious troopers are not frogmen. Frogmen oh. are like scouts. Are you telling me that they are not half frog, half man? No. <laughs> Amphibious troopers just arrive on boat. Um, so there's four ships that are involved in this. Like, essentially, like, troop transport. You have the Houston, the Rio Escondido, the Kirabe, and the Atlantico. I would like to commend you for saying all of that because you could have just said there were four ships. You didn't have to show off how little you know about Spanish. Well, there's no, because I have to talk about two of them that got destroyed. Okay. It comes back around. Okay. Um, and these were to transport about 1,400 members of Brigade 2506 to land on the shores of the Bay of Pigs. Now, the main challenge of this group, that the events of April 15th had Castro and his military on high alert for a second attack. And now the interesting thing that I read about this is we actually did, like, do fake landings on other beaches essentially like we'd have ships go up to other beaches and then just like pull off so trying to kind of like 
confuse the Cuban military to where we were going to land because they kind of knew that it was coming. And I think that this actually did work once and they got Castro away from the beach that the landing was actually happening on. Um, regardless, it, it, they were still prepared for us to come. Now, as early as 6.30 a.m., surviving FAR aircraft, so these were the ones that weren't killed in the bombing run, uh, began attacking the ships unloading troops. By 7 a.m., the Houston, which carried most of the force's medical supplies, had been beached by aircraft fire. Um, essentially, this was beached in a way that they couldn't get to it. Like, they destroyed the ship. Um, many of the troops on this vessel lost their weapons and ammunition due to the crash, rendering them just unable to fight. Like, they just didn't have guns, so what are you going to do? By 8.30, all of the troops had landed on shore where Castro's forces were awaiting them. Around 200 paratroopers who were to land and hold key points to slow that advance of the Cuban army to the amphibious forces, so essentially they're holding the Cubans back from the beach, um, they began to land. Uh, immediately there were issues with troopers missing their targets, losing most of their equipment, and losing airdrop supplies that sank in the swamps. Because something else that we haven't brought up is Kennedy's new landing zone uh, for this entire assault is surrounded in swamps. Which, one, makes it hard to invade there. Two, makes it hard for any rebel forces that you're wanting to join up with to be able to come to you. Like, the like swamps, these are impassable swamps. This isn't just like, oh, like, it's a little muddy over there. Like, this is, you know, alligator, crocodile, whatever they have down there, infested swamps. Um, yeah, so all those 30,000 troops they were expecting, they were there. They were totally, they existed. They just couldn't get there because of all the swamps. They got ate by alligators. Yeah. <laughs> all the alligators, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, the paratroopers did have some success in that they were aided by air support and were able to block roads to slow down the advance of the Cuban militia over the next two days. Spoilers, this is whole attack lasts pretty much two days around 9 30 the rio escondido which is another one of those ships so we've already lost to houston we have three left uh, the rio escondido was destroyed when attacks from in enemy aircraft ignited its supply of airplane fuel so essentially this ship was bringing all the supplies all the ammunition all the food, everything like that, everything they needed to provide for this invasion, for the troops, was lost on the ship. And that's because they were bringing airplane fuel, because they were going to take those airstrips that they bombed and start landing their planes there, so that the invading forces could have airplanes. Um, obviously, that didn't work. With this explosion, the food and supplies to provide for the invading force were lost. The next day on April 18th at 2 p.m., Kennedy received a telegram from Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev informing him that any U.S. invasion into Cuba would be met with swift nuclear repercussions. Essentially saying, if you land American boots on the ground, we're gonna nuke ya. So that's a pretty hefty threat. Uh, throughout the day, the situation continually worsened for Brigade 2506. On April 19th, 
President Kennedy authorized six unmarked fighter jets to provide combat air patrol for the brigade's aircraft for one hour with the limitations that they could not instigate air combat or attack ground targets. Unfortunately, there was miscommunication on time, and the six jets missed their rendezvous with the brigade's aircraft, whom they were supposed to be escorting. Uh, this led to severe losses in aerial control over Bampegs. And the reason that there was a miscommunication in time is because of time zones. And this leads me to say, once again, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but I've said it in you know my day-to-day life. Time zones are evil. Abolish them. Get rid of all of them. Everybody needs to be on one time. Get rid of time zones. Get rid of daylight savings. Quit messing with time. See, this is something that personally affects our friend group, especially now in the days of COVID when we're just all online all the time, is that about half of us live in you know, central time and half of us live in eastern time. And it, it comes up every single day. Like I, I get getting confused about it because you joke about it about 75% of the time. I would say about 15% of the time, like you're kind of serious about it. And 10% of the time you're like, oh shit, I forgot that if I drive to Atlanta today, like it's going to be an hour later than I thought that I was going to get there. So I could see the military making that mistake. And you know what? Like, yeah, those are all inconvenient. People lost lives because of this right here. How many people have died because of time zones? They're dangerous. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. Abolish time zones. What difference does it make if it's called 2 a.m. when you wake up? It's just one time for the entire Earth. One time. He's just mad because he's in central time. (laughs) (laughs) Get fucked. Damn it. Throughout the day, Brigade 2506 pled for air and naval support only to be refused by the U.S. government. Now, of course, we were just talking like I can't imagine how rough this would have been. Um, This is the big reason why my grandfather hated Kennedy. And I I know I've brought this up before, but my grandfather was at Guantanamo Bay. And I didn't really ever hear my grandfather talk about politics. Um, But I did say that he hated Kennedy because of this. He was like, specifically, they needed our support. And they were just, like, screaming for our support, and we did nothing. So, like, that's got to be intense, and that's got to be very hard, especially for the U.S. government. However, many CIA contract pilots did drop supplies and ammunitions. This resulted, actually, in the deaths of four of them. Uh, These were the only four American deaths of the invasion. Without air support and supplies, and completely outnumbered by Castro's forces, the forces of Brigade 2506 began to either surrender or retreat back to the beach. Two American destroyers attempted to move into the Bay of Pigs to cover the evacuation, but gunfire from Cuban forces made that impossible, marking the end of a severely botched invasion. Yeah, so as I've previously mentioned, I'm going to be referring to the invading force as the American side. Um... Again, you can argue that both sides were Cuban, but if you still believe that, then just go ahead and start the episode over. Listen through it again, (laughs) because there's enough evidence that it was Americans. It was Americans. So all in all, for the Americans, the invasion resulted in 118 deaths, 360 injuries, and 1,202 men captured. President Kennedy faced the press the next day saying, quote, There's an old saying saying that victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. 
What matters is only one fact. I am responsible. I am the responsible officer of the government. Damn it, it's hard. It's a very, um, it's a very serious quote, but I am going to say, uh, you sound like a mix of JFK and Sean Connery. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> you just need to weed out the Sean Connery from your accent, and you got it. Yeah, so basically what he's saying is, like, I, I screwed up. Like, I accept responsibility. The buck stops here. I know it's the wrong president, but right. he did say that. Well, yeah. And this, all this sounds bad, right? This was a loss. Um, but because the Cubans were also using, in addition to their army, um, they called in an armed civilian militia. Like, uh, leading up to the invasion, Che Guevara was telling every Cuban citizen, like, everyone is responsible for maintaining our government. You need to get a gun, you need to train yourself with it, and then you need to be able to protect Cuba if the time comes. So, when this invading force comes in, a lot of Cuban, you know, all those people that the CIA was expecting to back them actually were backing the Cuban government. Right. Because Castro had taught them how to read. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, because they're using uh, untrained militia in addition to their army forces, uh, the Cuban toll was much worse. Um, over 2,000 militia members were either killed or injured during the conflict, and the actual Cuban army's casualties were roughly equal to the American side. Uh, minus the 1,200 people that were captured, of course. Right. So what ended up happening to those 1,200 prisoners? A few of them were executed along with some Cubans who were accused of aiding and abetting the rebels. Um, the remaining 1,179 men were sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, you may be thinking, Castro sentenced these guys to prison after executing a ton of other people for a lot less. And yes, Castro is kind of an asshole, but he's also pretty smart. Uh, and he knows that he has America right where he wants them. And he now has 1,200 men as collateral. So what does Castro think is equitable to 1,200 lives? Tractors. Castro demands tractors from the United States. <laughs> now, Think there are John Deere's? <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, well, and that's the thing is I don't know if that's like what he wanted from the start or if it's because he came up with this idea or like he announced this idea whenever he was speaking to. And we talked about this in episode two, the big farmers college in Cuba. Um, he's speaking to them. They're the same. You know, the farmers college helped Che Guevara rip up all those train tracks. Right. Um, yeah. Well, he's speaking to a, to a farmers college and he's like, you know, what we're going to get from the Americans tractors all of you are getting tractors you get a tractor you get a tractor um so i don't know if that was just something he came up with in the spur of the moment it is stupid 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 how into agriculture castro is and i get that like cuba like needs agriculture but it it's like all of the ends to his means are agriculture <laughs> tractors like, it's insane and we haven't even talked about castro's milk obsession yet we'll get there <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is where I get a little bit confused. So Kennedy sets up a non-governmental organization called, what else, but the Tractors for Freedom Committee, which is led by Eleanor Roosevelt and President Eisenhower's brother, Milton. The goal is to raise money to pay off the tractor ransom for the prisoners. Uh, and they're going to raise all of this money through the private sector. 
My confusion is that Kennedy has already taken responsibility for the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion. Why is he distancing himself so far from this ransom committee? In a statement urging citizens to donate, Kennedy said, quote, and I'm sorry again, the United States government has not been and cannot be a party to these negotiations. While this government is putting forward neither obstacles nor assistance to this wholly private effort, I hope that all citizens will contribute what they can, end quote. So I think I think the entire reason that he's dis- distancing is just to like not break the pres- precedent for the U.S. There's a precedent is like we don't negotiate with like demands. We don't like go to demands. We don't negotiate with terrorists, you know, until Reagan. I feel yeah. like we don't negotiate but, with terrorists came out a lot later, but I mean, it's but it's the same principle. It's like you you're not going to be able to hold American lives over our head for our goods. Because then people would threaten to attack us, and we'd, we'd essentially just... But what's the difference between that and private sector? Because, I mean, you can't trade with Cuba, so handing over anything to Cuba would be trading. Because that's not the government. But but private entities can't trade with Cuba. There's an embargo. It's, it's smoke and mirrors for no real reason. Everybody knows what's going on. Like, you're, you're playing with people's lives. Just pay the ransom. Give them their tractors. It's a bad precedent. It's a bad precedent because then every country is every every country is going to go. Oh, I'm going to like kill citizens if you don't give me this. Do you think it matters that it's coming from the private sector? Do you think it really matters? Well, I mean, kinda. I think that certainly makes a difference that the government's not the one doing it. Yeah, and because if someone else tried that and they kidnapped 1,200 Americans and said, ah, give us our money, the government's just going to go, no. Because that's exactly what they did here, kind of. They said no, but they set up a private sector thing. But they're not going to set up the private sector thing for the for the country that comes in and steals. Right. Or that kidnaps the 12. Like, in, in some other situation. Like, I guess. The reason that this private sector thing exists is because it was America. Like, America's fault, right? Right. But then that then that doesn't set the precedent, right? You're just setting a line. You're just setting mm, a line. Remember. Okay, anyway, that's what they did. So uh, clearly I'm wrong because that's what happened. You guys are right. I wouldn't say that, but... Well, listeners, write in and let us know how you feel. Write a haiku telling us how you feel <laughs> about... <laughs> about uh, negotiating with terrorists. So, regardless, the Tractors for Freedom Committee sends a telegram offering Castro 100 tractors in exchange for one-fifth of the prisoners. Castro, in turn, refused to negotiate by telegram and insisted on an in-person meeting. Now, what he wanted was either Eleanor Roosevelt or Milton Eisenhower. And I think, again, this is for optics, right? If he can get a picture shaking one of their hands, that bolsters him on the world stage. Right. Um, instead, they send a bunch of agricultural scientists to, to negotiate with him. Again, I don't know why they would be the best to negotiate. Like, shouldn't it be like a diplomat? Because they... They know how many tractors are worth people. Yeah, <laughs> they have the ratio down. Diplomats have no idea how many tractors are worth people. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, you might be right. Right. Um. So at the meeting, Castro demanded $28 million in either cash or tractors. Take your pick. Um. So for context, $28 million in 
1961, I think we're in at this point. Um, uh-huh. That's roughly $250 million in 2020 money. Uh, the Tractors for Freedom Committee heard this demand, had a good laugh, and then disbanded. So they're like, nah, we can't come up with $250 million in 2020 money, but it was really $28 million. So enter lawyer James B. Donovan, who started negotiations on his own. Basically, the families of the Cubans that were captured um, were requesting him specifically, and Robert Kennedy called him up and was like, hey, we really need somebody to go do these negotiations. I think you're a good pick for it. So he met with Castro, and over the course of four hours, uh, they eventually settled on $25 million worth of medicine and baby food, but no trackers. And all of this would still be provided by the private sector. I just can't imagine even today's money, the private sector giving away $25 million worth of baby food and medicine. Well, so this is kind of what I want to talk about. So, yeah, donations, quote unquote. What happened was they went to, uh, you know, Big Pharma and Big Baby Food and said, hey, if you'll if you'll donate all these supplies... (laughs) Big baby food. Yeah, you know, Gerber. Gerber. Um, if you'll donate all these supplies, <laughs> um, we'll basically take it off your taxes. So, indirectly, the government paid this ransom. So, to conclude this episode, I want to talk a little bit about CIA documents that describe the failings of the invasion. Um, and one of my favorite things that's been revealed through this was that, as we talked about, they disguised a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of American planes as Cuban Air Force. But we might have done too good of a job because in the confusion, the invading forces started firing upon the planes that were disguised as Castro's bombers. So yeah, we were fighting ourselves for a little bit. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, and and everything that I'm about to talk about is all because of the work of Peter Cornblue. Um, he's been fighting the CIA to get a lot of this information declassified through the through the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA. Um, so I just wanted to give him a shout out. Mr. Cornblue, you're doing a great job. If you ever listen to this episode, thank you very much for all that you do. I assume that's that's your super reliable source from earlier, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I will say he came up in my research too. So thanks for me as well. Um, so because of Mr. Corn Blue's work, we have some first head documents detailing exactly what, what went down on the day of the invasion. Um, and all of the following information comes from an internal investigation conducted by the CIA, essentially to figure out how the hell they screwed this up so bad. Um, the report is 150 pages, and as I've said previously, CIA documents are not exactly page turners, so a lot of what I say is coming from a summary written by the New York Times in 1998, so if you want more information, you can go look that up. It's a lot of interesting factoids. But according to the report, the budget of the operation was originally $4.4 million, and by the end of the operation, it was $46 million. So it had gone up over tenfold. Um, And as we previously talked about, the media was talking about this operation weeks ahead of the invasion. The CIA officers in charge didn't speak Spanish, so explaining what exactly the plan was to all of their forces probably wasn't as good as it probably should have been. Uh, And after the report came out, 
The findings were so damning that director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, resigned shortly after. Good riddance. Yeah. Yeah, we could talk a lot about him. But I'm not saying that he was forced to resign, but I'm also not not saying that. Yeah. The deputy director of the CIA said of the report, quote, In unfriendly hands, it can become a weapon unjustifiably to attack the entire mission, organization, and functions of the agency, end quote. Every copy of this report was destroyed except for one, and that was, you know, just for the archives, which was then declassified in 1998. Right. Uh, And just to close out this episode, before we get into after notes, I just want to share my favorite part of the CIA's report on the Bay of Pigs. The report concludes that if the White House ever wants to continue interfering in the affairs of other countries, it's better off calling up the Pentagon instead of the CIA. That's the CIA's report? Yes. (laughs) They're like, if you want to, if you want to keep on doing this, maybe, maybe call up the Department of Defense because we're, we, we need some work. And the thing is, even after seeing this report, the White House did not stop calling up the CIA to interfere in the affairs of other countries. They continued doing it for a very long time. Nope. And the CIA didn't stop interfering in Cuba. No. Cuba and the, pretty much just the rest of Latin America. Uh, but yeah, no. So, good episode. Uh, you got some afternotes? Uh, yeah. So, according to the JFK Presidential Library, quote, The Bay of Pigs was one of Castro's favorite fishing holes. He knew the land like the back of his hand, and he vacationed there frequently. So, by complete happenstance, Kennedy picked Castro's favorite vacation spot for his invasion force. So, yeah, yeah it's just unfortunate. Yeah, for sure. One of my afternotes is uh, call Castro, you know, what you will, but he was at least impartial to his friends and loved ones. Uh, See, upon the redistribution of land early in his administration, you know, when he was seizing up all that land from people, Castro's own mother lost most of her business when their plantation was made smaller. So like we were talking about earlier, they were a little bourgeois. Um, Apparently they had more than 406 406 hectares of land. Um, so his, his, his mom kind of got screwed over when some of that was taken. You know, for the best or for the worst, at least he wasn't impartial. I I respect that. So, <laughs> so next, I want to talk about a cocktail party hosted by the Inter-American Economic and Social Council. Uh, apparently, this is where every country in the Americas comes together to talk about, um, you know, upcoming economic opportunities and trade deals and all that. So Cuba sent Che Guevara to represent them, and the United States sent the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, which is apparently a position that exists specifically to attend meetings like this. Um, so they get to talking, and Che wants to thank Kennedy Uh, for the Bay of Pigs invasion because he said that the conflict brought the Cubans together and showed the world the strength of the nation and Castro's leadership specifically. Great. Yeah. (laughs) So. (sighs) I'm just going to say one more thanks, Eisenhower. Thanks, Eisenhower. Yeah. Thanks a lot, dude. So that's it. That's all we got. Now I would say that we're over hopefully over halfway through our our Cuban podcast series. Um yeah. Yeah. We've maybe got two more, maybe. I think we maybe. got one more and then like a little wrap up episode. Right. Right, definitely. 
So guys, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RWYH Podcast and on Instagram at I Really Wish You Hadn't. Got any questions or comments? Email us at podcast at I Really Wish You Hadn't.com. If you haven't yet, be sure to give us a little sub and maybe leave a review on your favorite podcast network. Uh, that stuff really helps us out a lot, so we'd surely appreciate it. I Really Wish You Hadn't is hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Cayman McMahon. We are produced by Colin Moore. Intro and outro music by Attack Story. Our cover art is by Nickator. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, don't golf when you're supposed to be meeting with the nearby foreign government. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do. It's called the revolution. I see it now.